0: Ask him to speak to us with an acknowledgement that we're going to surrender to what he shows us. That's when he tends to illuminate the passage for us. So let's jump right in our first week in Matthew 4. And guys, I want to go ahead and tell you that I thought that I'd spend a week in verses 1 through 11, uh, and that's not going to happen. All right, and maybe as we read this, you'll realize why that's not going to happen. Uh, I'm going to to spend at least two weeks. Three could happen. I'm not planning on three right now. We'll see what the Lord has in store. Verse number one. Matthew 4 verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, capital S, by the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Strange verse. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I think it's real clear there that as Matthew wrote this, he wants us to understand this is not a fast during the day, feast at night, like some religions do certain months out of the year. It's not that. And this is not just figurative language 40 days and 40 nights. This is very literal. So here he is, he was hungry, Jesus. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. I mean, kind of feel that, 40 days, 40 nights, hadn't eaten anything. He's super hungry, here comes the tempter while he's in that state. Come on stones, you've got the power. That stone right there, turn it into a loaf, piping hot loaf of bread. Throw you some butter in there. Get some honey. You're out here in the wilderness. John Baptist lived out here in the wilderness. I don't know why you've been starving. Just, just do it. Do it now. But he answered. Jesus answered. It is written. Deuteronomy. I think this is 8.3 or 6, three? one of those. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus just immediately put a ranking system. You may look at that next week. Did you catch that? You're starving. This is, you look ridiculous. Look at you. Fix this. You can. No. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Round one goes to Christ. Then the devil took him to the holy city. We know that's Jerusalem. Set him on the pinnacle of the temple. We're not sure. Is this the temple proper? Is he 100, 150 feet up in the air of Herod's rendition of refurbished Solomon's temple? Or is this that portion that they say was a coming together out in the courtyard that was on the eastern section that had actually like a 450 foot drop? We're not real sure which one. But this really happened. The devil took him to the holy city. Set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him... If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Go ahead. Jump. Leap. Go for it. Look. Yes, it's high. But you'll be fine. Why? For it is written. Oh, it is written. Who's talking? This is Satan talking. For it is written. You like to quote Bible verses? I can quote Bible verses. I've got a verse for you, Jesus. Psalm 91. You know this to be true, Jesus. Jesus. He, God, will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Just jump. You know as well as I do, you'll never hit the... Bo- Look at them. Look at them. I know that. I remember that one. I used to live in heaven with him. Look at that one over there. Look. At, you know how quickly they can fly. Look how eager they are. Just do it. You'll never touch the rocks. How impressive would that be? Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. John, you've got Bible. Just leap. It'll be a huge wow factor. No, there's more to the story. The Bible also says you shall not put the Lord your God. You don't test God. Round two, that goes to Christ as well. Gonna we'll take a major comeback for Satan here, verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, "All these things, you see it. All these things, I will give you. Do you understand? I promise. I know I'm a liar. I'm a father of lies. I know I lie all the time, but I really, really mean it, Jesus." I promise, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Please. Oh, you don't know how much. If you'll just fall down, just for a moment, just just bow before me, worship me. I promise I'll I'll give you all those things. Look at them. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, kind of true from earlier apparently, angels came and were ministering to him, no doubt bringing some food. Uh, So this is a big text. I'm going to tell you as I read this last week, actually weeks and weeks ago I already had my outline in mind what I was going to do. I even mentioned on a Wednesday night, I think, to the men or someone that as I read this text... um, Thought of it earlier. Hey, i got my points. We'll do this in one week. And if I can remember them, I won't have it written down. Yeah, here it is. Um, Sin is tempting. Satan is real. But Jesus is stronger than sin and Satan. You're like, yeah. That's the point of this text. That's wonderful. The only problem is that's not today's outline, right? Now, we're going to get across those same ideas hopefully at least over two weeks. We'll spend most of our time dealing with this first thought. It's not in your notes. But this idea, sin really is tempting. Um, so Tuesday, I started reading this like I try to do. And I would encourage you guys, don't just read a text one time if you're trying to study it. So I try to read multiple times. And as I did, punch in a few thoughts in the computer and come back, punch in a few more thoughts. I'm going to tell you about the second, third time I started reading, I started having more questions than I had answers. And that's when I realized this isn't happening one week. And... Um, So today, I usually like three points. Today, we're going to have two. The first one has four parts to it, um, and we had to cut some out to even get to that. Uh, Question one, uh, we're just going to call it difficult questions. Can we call it that? Difficult questions. Now, I realize we could jump right in, get to the point of the text, and that would be great, But as I'm reading this, I keep having these questions come in my mind. And I'm thinking, I don't want to skip this. And I didn't know the answers. And I'm going to go ahead and confess to you that I'm going to give you some inadequate, imperfect answers. And some of you are going to be like, there's got to be more than that. And some of you are going to get frustrated because the way your brain works. But I at least want us to be honest enough to say, hey, don't we have some questions here? So the first one is pretty simple. Uh, Here's my first question. And these are difficult This one may be not the most difficult. Question one, what was the purpose? What was the real point of Jesus being tempted? That kind of bothered me. I'm reading this. I'm looking for preaching points and teaching points. But kind of hovering the whole time is, what is the point? I'm not arguing with God like my tone is right now, but I'm like, Lord. Your son finally comes to earth. He lives in obscurity for 30 years. He's finally announced By the way, I skipped the whole point. I'm going to have to go back and get that, aren't I? I am going to go back and get that. So, But he's finally come to earth, and then he's living in obscurity. And then John the Baptist, that was my cue. John the Baptist finally baptizes him after resisting baptizing Christ. And then as he baptizes him, it was very important because the Holy Spirit descends on Christ. And as the Holy Spirit descends on him, that was John's cue. God the Father had already told him, the one that you see, the Spirit descend and remain on him, that's the one that's going to baptize in the Holy Ghost. He's going to be the Christ, the Messiah, and you're going to go tell everyone as his forerunner, this is the Christ, and John does that. Finally, Jesus is ready to go public, but God the Father sends him out into the wilderness. In fact, look back at verse number one. We're going to loop back, okay? Let's loop back and get our our thought that I missed. Then Jesus, after this wonderful thing, God the Father speaks out of heaven, this is my beloved Son, the Holy Spirit makes it clear, this is the Son of God. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. This is troubling. He's led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Each phrase there. Okay, the Holy Spirit, Jesus is actually being led. He's going exactly where he's supposed to go. He's right on the timetable. And the Holy Spirit leads him out into the wilderness. That's a strange place to take a vacation. He's not taking a vacation. He's going out there to be tempted, to be tempted. That's strange. Of all people, by the devil. And God is putting him in this position. So now I'm going to loop back to your original note. I looked at that, and it kind of dawned on me, and this is a little simplistic, but it is accurate. Sometimes God's plan allows his children to be tempted. That's the first thing we need to notice. Sometimes God's plan allows people, his children, to be tempted. I'm going to go and track this down just for a moment, not spend long there. 1 Peter chapter number 3. Got your Bibles? 1 Peter chapter 3. And look at, we'll go back to verse 16. If you have your Bible open, again, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. Very brief context. Do you guys want a good life? You're like, yeah, I want a good life. Or would you rather have a miserable life? You're like, no, I want a good life. Uh, if, if you want to go back and read this, this will tell you how to, how, how to have a good life, all right? It says you want to love life and see good days. Here's a tip. Watch your mouth. Watch your mouth. Watch your mouth. Keep your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil. Do good. Seek peace. Really seek the peace. If you hear this morning like, man, life's really bad right now. Why? Well, my neighbor's mad at me. Something about borrowed his pressure washer six months ago and I hadn't taken it back. He's upset. Uh, Yeah. Got another friend. She's mad at me because I've been... Telling all the other friends, kind of gossiping behind her back. So she's mad. at. Yeah, life stinks for you right now because you're not doing right. So then what the Bible is saying here before I read the text is verse 13. He who, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing what is good. Do the right things, life will be better. You say, so if I do the right things, I'll never have any problems. No, not Exactly. Proverbially speaking, it will be better, but there will still be times when you could suffer for righteousness' sake. So with with that in mind, verse 16, having a good conscience. Put that in context. Having a good conscience. That's how you should live life. So that when you are slandered, most of the time people are not going to go against you if you're doing the right thing. But every now and then, even when you're doing the right thing. So the text says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. People may still talk about you and you're doing the right thing, but hopefully you'll be living such a life that everyone else will be saying, hey, you need to leave them alone. There's nothing wrong with what they've been doing. And verse 17 kind of reminds me a little bit of Matthew 4. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So do the right things. You may suffer for it and be persecuted, but it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. You see those two phrases in verse 17a and 17c? Look tucked right in the middle. If that should be God's will. If what should be God's will? It's better to suffer for doing good. Oh, God would never let that happen. That may be God's will. Verse 18 then says, you may think, God would never let the innocent person suffer. Well, verse 18 says, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Okay, that makes no sense. Why is he suffering for sins? The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So I read that, and I know that's a little apples to oranges. That's not exactly talking about being tempted to sin. But the note that we just took, I hope is representative of an accurate line of thought. Sometimes God's plan allows His children that are here today, me included, to suffer, to be tempted. Now back to Matthew chapter 4. So I'm reading Matthew 4, and Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by none other than by the devil. What is going on there? He's he's suffering. He is Fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he's extremely hungry. He goes through one test and another test and another test. What is the purpose? And again, as I said a while ago, there's got to be something better to do with 40 days. Okay, he's in obscurity for 30 years. He's finally ready to launch. He's only going to minister on earth for two and a half to three years. 40 days is a long time. God, what is the point? 40 days could have been spared. This is a little lengthy. What's the point of all of this? I want to give you five reasons. If you want to write these down, track with us. Number one, what's the purpose of Jesus being tempted? Number one, to prove Jesus' humanity. To prove Jesus' humanity. What's the point of this? To prove Jesus' humanity. Now guys, there are several ways I could go to, to try to drive this point home. I'm going to choose this one. I don't know if you can relate or not. There have been times I have tried to minister to certain People, sir. I have a literal picture in my mind. I could say what it was, but I I don't want to say it. May be obvious. I have been in a specific setting, not unlike this one, similar, where I have tried to minister to certain types of people and share truth with them, but I could sense. That they were not fully receiving the truth that I was given. Unlike, so you guys, you guys looking like you're receptive, at least open to what I'm saying. I've been in settings trying to teach truth, and I could just sense, and it was kind of expression, maybe the way it was sitting in the chair, and kind of that maybe had been a little indicator too. There was a bar. There's a wall. And and here's the crazy thing. They were open to the exact same truth I'm saying from someone else. Closed from me, open from someone else. And by the way, this is fine. I am okay with this. I'm just acknowledging what I sensed. They're not open to me. They're closed to me. And you're thinking, so Jeff, what do you think it was? I'm 99% sure what it was. You say, what was it? I hadn't struggled with the exact same sin that they had struggled with or they are struggling with. You're, you're not one of us. We can tell. And I didn't have a sign that says, hey, I've never struggled with that. But they could, it's like they could say, they could yeah, you're not one of us. Somebody else could. ah, now them. We're saying the same thing. Yeah, you get out of here. I'm open to them. It's like, okay, whatever. Um, And so I think what was happening is they're resistant to me. They're not open to me. Why? Probably because they feel like you can't relate with us. And really, ultimately, it's probably this. We can't trust you. We can't trust you. You've not been through this. So, Jeff, what's your point? Hear me. Jesus can relate with everything you've ever been through. I want you to hear this. Whatever you have craved, you say, if you knew how strong a craving has been in me, I mean, where I would do almost anything, you have never craved anything more than he was craving these real temptations. 40 days without food, don't you think that was 10? Come on right now, just turn the stones into bread. You have never craved more than he has craved. He can relate with anything you have gone through. And follow me if you would, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, I want us to look at a, a text that I think every year at Christmas, one way or another in some setting, I'm going to touch on this. Uh, in fact, I almost wrote this morning, I didn't have time, I almost wrote w- purpose of Christmas. Uh, right above these five verses. Uh, I always hit them at some point, seems like. Around Christmas time. Hebrews chapter 2. Watch, the, watch, watch what the Bible says in verse 14 to 18. Since therefore the children. Here's what the Bible says. We're talking about how temptation proves the humanity of Jesus. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. That's just code for this. Since Abraham's descendants and those who are Abraham's descendants by faith. The human race. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Since we're human. He himself. Literally God. God the Son, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That's Christmas. We're going to see five reasons why Christmas happened. He himself partook of the same things. Why? Number one, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Why did you become human, God? Why was this so important? Because God can't die. Jesus had to become a man so that he could die, so that he could use death itself to defeat the one who had the power of death, the devil. Verse 15 continues that thought, but gives us a second reason. And by that death, verse 15, deliver all those who who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. By my death, I'll beat death, I'll defeat the devil, and I'll release those who've lived in slavery to sin by my death. He has a very specific reason for Christmas. Verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. God didn't become an angel. God became human. Why? Because the children are flesh and blood. Verse 17. So we have two reasons so far. Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? Reason number three. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Christ, why did you have to become human? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Number four, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. As the high priest representing us to God, Jesus has to offer a sacrifice that will appease the wrath of God. Hold off and appease, satisfy the wrath of God. What sacrifice is he going to give? Himself. That's why he's our great high priest. He gives himself. How? He becomes a human and dies on a cross. Verse number 18 gives us the fifth reason. For because he himself has suffered when tempted... He himself has suffered when tempted. Because of that, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Do you see that? He's not only relating with, what he's saying is I'm going to be able to help you. Not only can I relate with what you're going through, I'm able to help you because I have gone through the same types of things. Flip the page, chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jeff, if you knew the things that I'm struggling with, the things that I'm battling, I have so many temptations going on right now. I'm fighting. Okay, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why is that possible? Because Christ became a human being. He can relate. That's the purpose of the temptation of Christ. Back to Matthew chapter 4. Second reason, very quickly. What's the point? Lord, this is a long time, 40 days. Guys, it's worth 40 days for what we just said. Second thought here, why? To prove Jesus is the sinless son of God. Does that really matter? Yes. How do we know he's the sinless son of God? He's our champion. He literally took the best efforts and the, and the strongest temptations that Satan had to offer. Christ took them and never sinned one time. He proved he's the sinless son of God. Reason number three, this is important. Why did he go through the temptation? To show that being tempted is not a strange event. Some of us need to hear that. There's a Christian here this morning, and you have really been tempted. And by the way, you've maybe given in some. What I'm about to say is not a pass to give in to sin. All I'm saying is, you can count on this. If Christ was tempted, you are going to be tempted. You're not the only one. You're like, uh, And by the way, there's some Christians sitting here. You've, at times in your life, you thought, I think I'm the only Christian who's tempted with the things that I'm tempted with. No, you're not. You are not the only one. Christ was tempted. You will be tempted. You're not the only Christian tempted in the exact same way that you are fighting a battle. Number four, what's the purpose? To expose the tactics Satan has been using really for six or 7,000 years. We're not going into all of those today. We'll touch on some of those more next week, I believe. By the way, you see these tactics in verses 1 through 11 if you paid attention. And we... By the way, I want to challenge you this week. Spend maybe every other day. Make yourself a little reminder and read slowly through verses 1 through 11 and say, now, if I were Jeff next week, what would I touch on and be looking? What are his tactics? It's the same ones he's been using on you for a long time. He's going to try them again. Try them on Christ. But ultimately, the fifth reason is to illustrate how to overcome temptation. Why? What's the point? Aren't there better things to do with 40 days? No, this is a great use of 40 days Because it proves his humanity, he can relate. He really is the sinless son of God. Being tempted is not a strange event. Here's what Satan does over and over. You see it in the text and it illustrates. If you'll pay attention, we'll see this eventually. This is how you overcome. And by the way, this is the only way to truly overcome moving forward. Don't try other ways. What Jesus is saying is, this is how you do it. Hey, this is how you do it. How? What I do, this is how you do it. Second question is not as lengthy, but I had to ask it. And so I want to ask it. I was troubled by this. Like, okay, wait. Is being tempted the same thing as sinning? Is being tempted the same thing as sinning? So Jesus is here in the wilderness. And he's brought out there to be tempted. But isn't being tempted the same thing as sinning? No. Let's talk about it briefly. If you want to write the following... To be tempted is not of itself sin. To be tempted, you're like, I am tempted by certain things. There are really strong temptations in my life. To be tempted is not in and of itself sin. You say, so when does it become sin? I'm going to offer this. This is not out of a book. It's probably a compilation of things. You feel free to pick it apart. It's not a perfect answer, but I offer the following. Temptation becomes sin when we give it a place In our thoughts. And when we give it a place in our thoughts, we now let it move into our heart. And I don't mean this muscle. I mean into our core being. So here's what happens. You're minding your own business. Something pops in your view or a thought out of nowhere hits your mind. It has strong potential to turn into sin. It is not sin yet. But if you give it more thought, you're going to maybe write this in a moment. It's not the thing that pops in your view that you weren't planning on, it's the second look. Did you catch that? It's like, oh my goodness. You just moved it into sin. It's not this, where did that come from? Hmm. Think about that. You are moving it into sin to complete my thought. It becomes sin when we give it a place in our thoughts and we let it move through our heart and affect our will. It's the second look. It's the second thought. Kind of maybe a real, real practical. Very simple. Guys, it is not sin to notice that someone else's house is nicer than yours. Wow. This is awesome. Your house is like so much better than mine. Or their car. Or their clothes. Where did you get that? Oh, I love that. You have not necessarily sinned. You've just acknowledged probably a fact. Wow, your 2019 is nicer than my 88. You think? Unless you've had a classically restored something. Okay? You're just acknowledging there's no sin. Here's the question, guy. Okay, your house, your car, your clothes, your hair, your teeth, your personality. Well, you've got great personality. Wonderful. What are you going to do with that? Do you let that fester and churn and throw a lot of energy at that so that it turns into discontent? Now it has become sin. I could say it this way. It's when we let the temptation linger in our mind and start building a nest. I, I literally think it's a split second. I can't tell Jeff, when does it go split second? I can't tell you split second. But when it goes from a temptation, here's a desire, something that was thrown at you, to now you let it linger, you give it thought, you give it another look. Let me say it this way. A married person, so here's two married persons. It is not sin for a married person to acknowledge, to recognize that another person is attractive. That's human. That's human. They've not sinned. It's the second look, the second thought, throwing some energy at that potential of an attraction so that it turns into lust. That's the sin. Being tempted, sinful? No, not of itself. These things we read here in Matthew chapter number 4. Tempted, Jesus. But notice what he did. He quickly dismisses them as not God's will for me at this time. Third question. Before we look at it, we need to read a text. So mark your spot. Go to James chapter 1. And I am quite sure that some of you sitting here probably already had this in your mind. Like if we're going to James 1 today. As you read Matthew 4, maybe you're reading that and you started thinking, wow, this is actually an unusual text. He's following the Spirit. He goes exactly where he's supposed to be, doing exactly what he's supposed to do. And lo and behold, he's in temptation. He's in a real battle. And this is Jesus, the Son of God. So we have this question. Look, if you would, James chapter 1, verse number 12. We'll read down to verse 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Steadfast means you don't just stand. It wouldn't be steadfast if there wasn't resistance. Resistance, hardship, trial, suffering, temptations. He'd been talking about that back in verses 2 and following, 2 to 4. So verse number 12, "Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial." So do this. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Be steadfast. Don't fall down. So hold your ground. So do this. Stand firm. Verse 13. Don't do this. Don't do, verse 13. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. Verse 13 again, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. This is God's fault. God's the one that made me. This This isn't my fault why I keep doing that. I'm just made this way. This is not my fault. This is God's fault. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Notice, for God cannot be tempted with evil. God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You're saying, wait a minute, wasn't Jesus tempted? Verse 14 again, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, his own kind, his or hers own kind of desire unique to their situation at that time. What tempts me may not tempt you, and what tempts you may not tempt me, but here's where verse number 14, here it comes. It's, it's luring, it's enticing. By the way, sin has not happened in verse 14. Then, verse 15, then desire when, then desire when it has conceived. I propose that the words then and when in verse number 15 imply some level, some lapse of time That moves this from temptation to sin. Something happens between 14 and 15. By the way, Jesus never let it slide from 14 to 15. He shuts it down in verse 14. Quickly back up. I know we're getting a little technical, so I'm going to back off of that. I don't want to be too technical today. Verse 14. God's not doing this. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Sin hasn't happened yet. Then desire, this is when we let it get down into us, gets down into the soul, the heart, and starts affecting the will. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sure enough, sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, you already know the questions I'm going to ask there, don't you? It's twofold. So I'm reading Matthew, thinking about James. Flip over to James and read that, refresh myself, so I have these questions It's two-part. Here it is. How can James, 1 verses 12 through 15, say, "God is not tempted by sin, yet Jesus was tempted." Isn't Jesus God? So I've got a problem. Maybe James is applying to God in the Old Testament, and it changed 2,000 years ago. the only problem with that, James was written after Jesus' life, death and resurrection. The second problem. How does this text say that God does not tempt any man, yet he very clearly is the one who sent Jesus into the temptation? How can the Bible say that? He doesn't He, he definitely he set all this up. Which one's wrong? So we got to make a decision. One of these passages is wrong and needs cut out of our Bible, right? We have a, we have a major contradiction. No. And I'm going to offer some possible solutions, and this is where I admit those of you that your brain works a certain way, you're going to get frustrated with with my possible answers. How can the Bible say this? God is not tempted, yet Jesus is tempted. Can I offer the following? James says God is not tempted. God is not tempted by sin, then, now, or ever. God cannot be tempted by sin. Watch. But Jesus, as an actual man, can be tempted. Told you you wouldn't like the answer, but that's the answer I'm going to offer. God cannot be tempted, but Jesus, as an actual man, but isn't Jesus? I'm agree. God cannot be tempted. Jesus, as a man, obviously could be tempted. Second thought is this: so how in the world can we say that God doesn't tempt people when He obviously set these things up? I'm going to offer the following. Probably will frustrate you, but here goes. God. Allowing temptation is not equal to God tempting. God allowing something does not mean that he actually did it. I'm offering that. And here's the proof. So I look up Strong's Concordance and I look up this word tempted. And sure enough, tempted in Matthew is the same Strong's Concordance word for tempted. Maybe there's a difference. Nope, same word, same idea. Matthew, James. So what's going on here? Strong's Concordance writes the following. The word tempted in Matthew and James means, quote, if you want to write this down, watch it. It's four parts. This is key. It means to test, tempt, to try to trap, or to examine. Now, that sheds some light on my dilemma. It means to test, tempt. Yes, I know about tempt. Trap, examine. And then as I step back and I realize, whoa, test. And examine, those kind of go together. That's a thought. This tempting and trying to trap, those go together. And so I'm going to offer this as a possible solution. God, so when the Bible's talking about what happens here, God allowing temptation does not mean that God is doing the tempting. And here's my solution. God, the Father, was testing his son, Jesus. Satan was tempting Jesus the Christ to fall into sin, to fall into enticement, to go away from God. God was not intending that and wanting that. God was allowing a test, we could say, to prove his son, to examine his son's character, to test him, put him through a test. How will we know he really is the sinless? If we just put him down there and he never goes through anything, then yeah, we just don't want to assume he's the sinless son of God. We've got to put him to the test. Satan, on the other hand, is really trying to make Jesus... Fall. So guys, I want to propose this. I'm going quickly through some notes. i got to hurry. Watch. There's a principle. So I read James and I read Matthew and I have a dilemma. seems like a contradiction. I want to offer the following. There's a principle that the best interpreter of Scripture... Which one's right? The best interpreter of Scripture is not at the university, is not in Rome... It's not in some book from the 400s or the 1500s. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. scripture. Amen. And so I want to encourage you. This isn't the only ones. As you come through and you're reading your Bible, I hope you'll read thoughtfully. And hope you'll start making the connections. You're going to come into things that you're going to struggle with. And so to that end, I'm going to encourage you. Interpret difficult passages in the light of clear passages. This is important. You're like Jeff, this seems like a classroom today. This is so much different. I realize it's very different than sermons I've been doing lately. I understand that. And I don't want it to be tedious, but I feel like I'm only going to go through Matthew one time and I need to hit these things. I plan to only go through Matthew one time. Let me draw that point. Watch this. Satan knows the Bible. Satan is even willing, as I read this this week, cursed me. Satan knows the Bible. You like to quote? I can quote. He tempts. Jesus quotes a verse. Fine, I can quote a verse. He knows the Bible. He is very fine with quoting the Bible for his purposes. Verse 6 really blows me away because if you think about it, in it, Satan is not only presenting a passage of Scripture. He's actually encouraging Jesus to trust it and act on it. Hey, that's good preaching. Here's a passage, put your faith and trust in this passage and now act on it. That's what Satan's doing with Jesus. But notice what Jesus does. Jesus does not just rebuke Satan like you've totally misunderstood what that passage is saying. He doesn't do that. Psalm 91 does offer that has a promise to God's people and if it's promised to God's people then surely it applies to the very son of God so Satan it's not that Satan is totally misusing this passage watch what Jesus does this is key Jesus says here's the rest of the story we have to balance that pa- that passage is true so I could say it this way yes angels were given charge to protect God's son yes they are but the key word in Jesus' response is the word again. I hear that passage. But again, in addition to that, alongside of that, we have to balance that passage with this passage. we got to bring in all of Scripture. Satan, what you've got to remember, and I know you know this, Psalm 91 is actually, I'm going to go back and touch it. Psalm 91, verse number 9. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, then it talks about the promise. Chapter Psalm 91 Verse 1 says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. These promises that that Satan pulls up about, yes, just angels have been given a charge over you. These are not for just anyone. It's for people who meet the conditions of verse 1 and 9. Again, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Shadow, like really, really close to God. Verse number 9, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. What Jesus knows is you've pulled out a verse that seems like I should just launch But I know that that has to be balanced with this other passage. That verse, the promises are for people who obey God and live close to God and live in harmony with God. Jeff, what's your point? Getting technical. You're losing me. Here's my point. Jesus knows I could on this pinnacle, whether it be 100, 150 feet, or whether it be 450 feet. Yes, I could, and yes, they will. But just because I can doesn't mean I should because that is not God's will. That would be out of God's will. I would be tempting God. Guys, that would be like the person who has the sick child and refuses to take them to the doctor because they, they're waiting on a miracle from God and the child ends up dying and then they get mad at God. Wrong thinking. Jesus knows that would be reckless living for me just to go out and act like I get to live any way I want, pull a passage of Scripture, hold God hostage with it, and if I were to jump off of here, then these angels, because God's got to keep his word, they've got to break my fall. That is reckless living. Jesus knows it would be sin to assume God is supposed to perform miracles as I go live how I want to live. That would be sin. Again, round two goes to Christ. So still in Matthew, but I want you to just just, just put it on the screen as I round out this thought. Don't forget what 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says. So isn't it God's fault? He's the one who made me this way. How can the Bible say he doesn't tempt, but he's the one? Verse number 13. Really take this home. I know most of you know it, but it comes into play in Matthew 4. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Jeff, I think I'm the only one. I'm going through something. No one has ever gone through. Oh, no, there's others. That doesn't give permission to go sin. Just know that you're not the only one. You're not weird. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Here's the key, though. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now, sometimes you may hear that and go, apparently it was beyond my ability. I fell into sin, and again and again. I'm losing the battle. You don't have to. You're losing the battle because you're not taking this verse into account. You're not following the example that, Matthew, that Jesus gives in Matthew 4. Look at the verse again. God is faithful and he, here's a promise, this is a fact. God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Well, apparently it was. No, it wasn't. But with the temptation. oh here comes the temptation. I see it, I feel it. He will also provide the way of escape. Look at the edge of it. Look around it. Look behind it. There is a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So guys, as you read that verse, I want to, I'm going to move on. Watch. Assume this is true. Here comes the temptation. All right, I know this. Here it comes. God's not going to put more, more on me than I can bear. This does not have to defeat me. God never puts a person in a position where they have to sin. They must fail. God does not do that. So I know there's an escape I need to find. I need to assume it's true. I need to find the way of escape. And I need to choose the way of escape. And I need to do it quickly. That's exactly what Christ did. As I finish that thought, here's what Strong's writes about those words, tempting and testing and trap and examine. He writes the following. Hear it. Hear hear this. It's important. The difference between a test and a temptation is found in the tester's motivations and expectations. The devil tempts the believer that the believer might fail God's standards of faith and sin. That's what he's after. God tests that he might determine and sharpen, determine and sharpen true character. With no focus on making the believer fall. Satan is all about you falling. God's about you exposing and developing and growing deeper character. You say, well, it sure feels like the same. Motivation's totally different. God does not tempt people to sin. My fourth question, I want to hit it quickly. I think it will be quickly. I have to ask it. have to ask it. We will have difference of opinion. If I were to say, hey, raise your hand. Now, if you do this, you believe that, uh, we would have a split. Okay, So we're not going to split our church over this question. But we are going to acknowledge there's a little bit of difference. Here it is. Was it possible Jesus could have sinned? Matthew 4. Was it possible? So ask yourself Jesus is tempted by this, and he's tempted by that, and he's tempted by that. Was he really being tempted? Could he, theoretically, genuinely have sinned? Was it really on the table? Was there really a chance, a genuine chance, that Jesus could have sinned? And the theologians disagree on that. And I'm not a theologian, so I'm going to offer the two views, at least two. I'm sure there's more than two. Here's one. Some theologians say, oh yes, absolutely, Jesus could have sinned. Had he not chosen to be sinless? He had to choose to be sinless. Could he have sinned? Absolutely he could have sinned. Why? He's a real man. He's an actual man. As a real man, he was really being tempted. And yes, he could have sinned if he had not chosen to be sinless. But he did choose to be sinless. Now, we know he didn't sin, but he could have. But he chose to be the sinless son of God. And that's one view. Jeff, what do you think? Maybe. And if you're thinking that, I'm going to admit to you, you might be right. But you didn't get to do the handout, and I did, so I'm going to go with my view. (laughs) My view is the other view. And by the way, I'm admitting, you may be right. You might be right. One day we'll find out. And I'm sure somebody will come up and say, well, you didn't think about this, and you'll make a great argument why Jesus could have sinned. And I might change, but as of now, here's where I stand. And I hate to use this phrase because... I can't imagine Christ actually succumbing to sin. And I don't like to use that phrase, I can't imagine God, because I tell people don't, to ima- don't imagine God. Go with what the Bible says. But here's my thought. I cannot imagine Christ actually succumbing to sin. Why? Is he not, re- is he not really a man? Yes. Here's why. He is God. If you were to say, Jeff, who is Jesus? Boil it down. I mean, really reduce the sauce. Get it down to the pure. Who is he? I can give it to you in one word. He is God. And that's why I fall on this side. I can't imagine him coming to sin. Why? He is God. In fact, let me share my, hopefully it makes sense. Here's my thought. His divine nature, that's his deity, that's his God nature as God. I'm gonna propose Jesus's divine nature is so much more opposed to sin than his human nature could ever be tempted by sin. Let me say that again. I believe his divine nature is. So much, I didn't have those words in there, so much more opposed. I mean, that's why he has to send people to hell. That's why he had to send his son to die on a cross. Because God will not let sin into heaven. God cannot stand. He can't tolerate it. I cannot have it. It is against everything in my nature. I believe that Jesus' divine nature is so much more opposed to sin than even his human nature could ever be tempted by sin. Though I believe the human nature could be tempted by sin. So, Jeff, are you saying you really feel like there wasn't a chance? I don't think there was a chance. Secondly, I would back that up with another thought. It was also God's predetermined plan for him to be the sinless sacrifice for sin. So, even if you say, Well, don't you think? Here's all I know. Peter says it was foreordained before the foundation of the world that he would come and die for our sins. And only a sinless sacrifice would be an acceptable sacrifice. So I know this. It was not going to happen. God predetermined. God foreordained. God foreknew. He meant this is going to happen. So I'm going to offer, no, Jesus couldn't have. Now, here's the problem. Here's the problem. And this is where it's going to get tricky just for a second. The people who are on the other view, they're going to say, All right, Jeff, if you're going to put... So much weight in the deity, then you're weakening the humanity saying he could not actually have sinned. Jeff, you remember your first point when you had the whole why is Jesus going through this? And you said to show his humanity so that he can relate with us? Okay, you're weakening that argument because he can't really relate with us. How do you answer that? Yeah, that was a good one. I'm glad y'all asked because that one kicked me around this week. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. If I go strong on this, I'm weakening that. Aren't you canceling out how he relates with us? And so I'd offer the following. It doesn't cancel out his ability to relate with our weakness. Though, admittedly, it may mitigate his ability to relate with our weakness. Why? I'm going to confess to you. Get this. Jesus did not have a fallen sin nature raging inside of him that when this temptation came, well, it made a real battle because he's got the sin nature from Adam. He did not inherit that. You have that. So, Jeff, we have a past. No, we don't have a past. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. Yes, you do have a. Well, aren't you like weakening and lessening? I don't think so. I do think maybe admittedly it may lessen that, mitigate it. So here's my thought. I believe Jesus got just as close as he could get to us so that he can relate with us without going all the way in and getting a sin nature. I'm going to get as close as I can, but I can't go there. I will not go there. It's impossible. He doesn't have the sin nature. Does that make sense? That's my little weak attempt. Now, our second point is not as long as it was the first point, so let's hit it quickly. The varied forms of temptation. The Varied Forms of Temptation. And for this, uh, let's do what hardly any of the books I read did and go over to 1 John chapter 2. Just throwing this out. 1 John chapter 2, verse number 15, 16, 17. And I know why not many of the commentaries that I checked for this passage in Matthew 11 did not go here. There's one main sticking point but I'm going to throw it out still because I I think it does fit. So here's what we're talking about. We read Matthew 4, and what do we find? The varied forms of temptation. I'm not talking about all the tactics that Satan uses. We'll look at that hopefully next week. Now we're finding the, the various ways, and by the way, we find patterns. It tends to be the same kinds of ways that sin tempts us, and they were the same ways that Satan tried to tempt Christ. Look at verse 15. Do not love the world. doesn't mean the planet. doesn't mean the people. God still so loved the world. He loved people. This is not that. This is the world system, the invisible world system that opposes God. You say, I don't really believe in that. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Whether human beings are organized in a conspiracy theory, you better mark it down. Satan and his forces are organized in a conspiracy theory against mankind and against God and against the church. You better believe that. It's invisible, but it is real. It is strong. It's powerful. So John says, Grace, if you hear this, Christian, hear this. Take it in. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I think there's two ways to look at that. If someone never loves the things of God and always loves the things of the world system that's against God, you're not a Christian but I would propose that even a Christian who is loving the things of the world at that time is not loving God. So don't love the things of the world. Love the things of God. Verse 16. For all that is in the world, here it comes, the desires of the flesh. King James says the lusts of the flesh. So it's not, not just any desires, urges, appetites. Hey, Jeff, I'm addicted to oxygen. Is that sin? No, I am too, and it's not sinful. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh. Oh, that's sinful. No. These are the sinful versions of these things. Verse 16. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life. Talking about varied forms of temptation. Those are not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires. If you go after that, you're investing in something that is sinking. It'll only take your money and leave you nothing. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Would you write this down? Satan tempted Jesus in the same exact way he tempted Adam and Eve, and it's the same exact way he attempts you and I. How? With the, Through the avenues of the desires of your flesh. Again, this is the... Evil, the sinful version of those, he's trying to play on your normal human desires and turn them into wrong desires. Lust of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. How does he do this? You remember Eve? She saw the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And boy, it looks like it would be desirous for food. And that looks like it would taste good. I think I want that. That looks satisfying. I crave that. I want that fruit. But beyond that, she saw that the fruit was desirous it was pleasing. It was desirous to the eyes. It's not only good for food. This looks attractive. Same thing he does with, with Jesus. He plays on the, the desire of the flesh. Jesus is hungry. And so he's going to play on that. Same thing he did. Food gets us in a lot of trouble. I'm telling we don't preach on it enough. Food gets Christians and mankind. A lot, tripped up Adam and Eve over food. He's going to try to trip up Jesus over food. Eve saw the fruit was a delight to the eyes. Satan takes Jesus to the top of a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And look how attractive. Look how good it is. I just want one thing. Just for a moment. Just bow and worship me for a moment. Christ would have none of it. And then the pride of the life. Pride of life. This is the one that several folks would not go and make this application with Matthew because they don't feel this one fits. But I notice the following, Eve saw that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would make one wise. And we will know things like God and we'll kind of move up to a God status. And God's trying to hold us down and so I'm going to take this and I'll improve in my knowledge that it's pride that is going to cause her and Adam to disobey God. Satan, now here's the tricky part. We don't, this is not stated, but some would say one of the reasons that Satan is saying for Jesus, go ahead, throw yourself off this pinnacle. Why? Because those Jews are looking for their Messiah, their Christ. They are so ready, so zealous. If you were to throw yourself off of this pinnacle and angels break your fall and you just land lightly, you just turn and announce, I am your Christ, I am your Messiah, I am King of the Jews. Say what you want. They are loyal, they will back you, you'll be everything. Pride of life. Here's what I find those same things tempt me and they tempt you. We like things that make us feel good lust of the flesh, desires of the flesh. You guys like to feel good. If you're sitting here saying, No, I don't like to feel good, you're lying. It comes out in several forms. I just like the way that sounds. I don't want God to deny me or deprive me. God, stay off my back. I like that sound. I like that sound. It's one of my favorite. I'm going to do it. Okay, desires of the flesh. I just like the way it tastes. I like the way it tastes. I'm not giving it up. Or I don't only like the way it tastes, I like the feeling that it gives me. Or I get these urges and I'm after it. I'm not going to stop until I satisfy this urge. Lust of the flesh. Lust of the flesh. It's in us all. It's what the Bible calls sensuality. Just living all the time trying to please Americans because we have money. Constantly are pleasing our senses. The lust of the eye. Look how good it looks. Oh, yeah. We like attractive things. And we, we battle pride of life. I'm not talking about caring properly what people think. I mean, we care. We want everybody to like us. We want everybody to approve of us. We want everybody to look up to us. You do. By the way, if you're sitting here, no, I don't care what people, I know. There's a small version of people. They go the other way, and it's still pride of life. They're antagonistic, rubbing people the wrong way, always being the contrary, and why? See, I don't care what people think. No, you love being looked at as edgy and against and willing to be. To question authority and go against, it's still pride. You want people to think a certain way of you. Most of us, it's the opposite. I just want everybody to like me. And we battle the pride of life. So, this morning, as I come down the home stretch, Matthew. So, Jeff, we're gonna look at all these temptations. No, just look quickly at verse 2 and 3. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus was actually a man. This is key. Appetites just like yours. Please don't anybody read this and think, Jesus was drawing on some special ability to be impervious to hunger. That's why he could go 40 days and nights. No. How hungry would you be after 40 days? What would you do for a meal after 40 days? You're like, after 40 days, I think I'd do about anything. So here's one more thing that nagged at me. It's nagged at me. God... He's hungry. What's wrong? And some of you thought this. So what is wrong with just turning some stones into bread? He's hungry. What's the big deal? MacArthur, I think it's your last note, writes the following. It helped me. I think, hopefully it'll help you. So what's the big deal? Satan was hoping... To persuade Jesus to demonstrate his power. To verify that it was real. That's what he's after. And still, if you're like me, you're like, so still, what's the big deal? So he gives Jesus a chance, prompts him, prods him, provokes him. Show your power. You've got it. Is it real? Just turn these stones. Satan was hoping to persuade Jesus to demonstrate his power to verify that it was real. Now, here's the key. But that would mean violating God's plan that he, God, set... I'm sorry, that Jesus, he, set that power aside in humiliation. And use it only when the Father willed. I understand that is not clear in the text, but I think MacArthur is exactly right. If you want to make a little note, Philippians 2, 7 and 8. We're not going there. Philippians 2, 7 and 8. Jesus humbled himself. He emptied himself. Apparently, he and and God had a plan. You will set your power, your God powers aside. You will only use them when I give you permission to use them. Here he is 40 days without food, 40 days and 40 nights. It's not a power. It's not an ability thing. It's a thing of God's will. To finish the quote, Satan wanted Jesus to disobey God. That's what's happening. And so I'm going to propose to you. I'm almost done, but hang with me. I'm going to propose to you that Jesus' quote in verse number 4 means he knows he could draw on that power. Just turn these stones. Jesus never says, oh, that? I couldn't do that. Yeah, you can. Oh, no, I don't have that ability. He doesn't say I don't have that. He knows he has that ability. So what's the point? He knows it's not God's will. So here's where I want to finish. I want you to dial in. We're not going to do an imitation. In fact... Today I'm going to pray, and we want to have a final song, okay? So we'll not be 1215 getting out, all right? But I want you to get this. Sometimes our appetites can be satisfied righteously. Sometimes our appetites can be satisfied righteously. But at other times, God calls us to wait Or to take a lesser amount and that'll be enough. Hang with me. Sometimes you have an urge, you have an appetite, have at it. Other times there's this waiting or there's this certain amount. And I'm going to propose to you, be careful, watch this. That waiting or certain amount is when natural appetites become gateways to sin. They're natural appetites. By the way, they're not sinful. But your natural appetites, which are not sinful, call it an urge. Call it a strong urge. Like what? Food. Food. A natural appetite for food can become a gateway for sin. How? It's called gluttony. And as John said a couple of Wednesday nights ago, we don't ever preach on that. I struggle with that. Now I got a nice jacket that runs, flows a little, little room on it. I'm not coming in at the same LBs I was when I was 35. Jeff's got issues. And if it isn't even just about weight. It's about comfort and pleasure, and I'm gonna get my pleasure from food rather than spending time with God. We have a real problem with food. Careful, by the way. Sometimes, have at it, enjoy, get what you want. Other times, a certain that's plenty. I struggle with that. I think I'm the only one in here. <laughs> and every now and then, God says, Hey, we want you to wait. What's that? It's called a fast. Watch this one. Appetite for sleep and rest. i just t- tired. You know why? Because you're a human being. just tired. I just need a nap. I just need to go. I just need, if I could get six tonight, I'll be good. Some of you are like, i got to have my eight. Okay. So what's the problem? Our normal appetite for sleep and rest, if we're not careful, can turn into a sluggard. Where you just sleep on and on and on. Horrible sleeping patterns. Way out of whack. Going through the day like this. Alarm clock went off at 6. The nerve of that alarm clock. Why are you so irritable? I don't know. What time did you go to bed? 2.30. Can't keep a job. Why? Keep sleeping. Here's one. You have an urge to be productive. It's called work. Work run amok is called workaholism. It's sin. I need to do. It's up to me. No rest. An appetite for relationships. Some of you are just so relational. You love to communicate. But you got to be careful. You can make an idol out of a relationship. You can get in those relationships. And if you're not careful, like I had to confess Wednesday night, you slide right over into slander or gossip. But I just like to talk. I'm I'm just a people person. Careful. These sins will come easily. It's not sin to be a people person, not sin to love conversation and communication. Careful with the sin, it's a gateway. Natural. And of course, sex. You were made that way. It's okay, it's not a bad word. You have an appetite, urge, call it what you want. But if you let it get out of control, it can turn to lust. It can turn to pornography. It can turn to sex before marriage. It can turn to sex outside of your marriage called adultery once you're in it. It can turn to homosexuality, all types of things. So I just talked about just a few S- food, sleep and rest, work, relationship, sex. Watch this. These all deal with satisfaction of enough. These all deal with willingness to wait or unwillingness to wait or I'm not going to let that be enough. I want more. Or not at all. Some of you, these things I just mentioned, you may go through life and God's plan for you is not at all. Well, then I'll not stand for it. I'm going to go out of God's will because I can. Jesus knows, oh, I can turn the stone to bread. I can, but he didn't. Hey, if I want to, I got the money. I have a charm about me. I can have that person if I want, but it's not God's will. So sometimes it's about the enough, let enough be enough, or wait till later, or every now and then, no, that's not for you. You're not going to have that in this life. Jesus never crossed any of those lines. Never. He's our champion. He's our champion. Heads bowed, eyes closed. So just before I pray and we'll be dismissed, this pre-prayer thought is for Christians Identify yourself. Be honest. Are you a Christian? If you say, Jeff, I am trusting Jesus and Him only. I am really trusting Christ. I'm not adding any of me, none of my good works, none of my baptism or church membership or giving, Bible reading or prayer. It is all Christ. He's enough. I'm trusting Him only. Well, guys, I've got some good news I want to leave you with before I pray. Hear me. Christian, God loves you so settle that. God loves, Say that, God loves me in your head. And know this, and there's a reason I said settle that He loves you. Here's why. God will let you be tested. He's going to let you be tested. So your situation is not strange. God's plan is for your good. So Christian be encouraged. God's plan is for your good. He's letting you be tested for your good, but ultimately for his glory. This is going to sound crazy. We're actually going to may talk about this Wednesday night. Your temptation, in fact, even if it's strong, is a major chance. It's an opportunity to glorify God because it means more. It speaks louder when you choose God over your strong temptation. It's actually an opportunity to really glorify God. And some of you are thinking, well, I have lots of opportunity to glorify God then. I have some strong urges and strong temptations. Hey, trust your Lord. Know this, to be tempted is not sin. Sin is the second thought. It's the second look. It's the mental nesting. Just let it setting up a nest. Letting it linger. That's the sin. Remember, you never have to sin. There is a way of escape. Assume it is there. Find it. Choose it. And know that Jesus is our high priest who knows our struggles. And so in prayer, run to him. Come back in the next week or two, and let's learn how Jesus won the victory. There's definite techniques that work. And until then, know this. This is not a a license to sin, but you need to know this. I'm trusting Christ. No matter what I've done before or even since I've trusted Christ, no matter what sin I've done, I am secure. I am his. There's a place for me in the house of God. Christ is our champion. And he's powerful enough to overcome sin even in us in the Christian life.